podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads, but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hello listeners, I'm Mo Chatra. And welcome to another episode of Money Talks right here on Anfield Index Pro. And um, I have a very special guest for you um, for this episode of Money Talks, um, an individual that um, is a veritable authority on um, the economics of, of sport and um, particularly about football. Um, he's an individual that has um, written uh, various books, including um, uh, Soconomics. And um, on top of that, he's also a um, professor of um, sport management at the University of Michigan. Um, so I'm delighted to welcome um, Dr. Stefan Szymwinski, um onto Money Talks. How are you, Stefan? Hi, uh, I'm very well. Thanks for inviting me. I think your audience might have been getting excited that they were going to get Simon Cooper there for a minute. So um, I uh, apologise for anybody who's suddenly disappointed by that. No, no. Um, you know, we're more than delighted to uh, welcome um, you onto onto here. And uh, uh, of course, you did co-author um, Soconomics with um, Simon, didn't you? Um, and you're you're on to is it the fourth print of of, of the book now? Yeah, no, it, it's, it's been an incredibly cool. successful collaboration. Well, actually, we have the fifth edition coming out for uh, the World Cup, um, so we'll be in the shops should be in October, and we've added um, three new chapters, completely revised. Um, and uh, discussion of data analytics in football and the impact of the European Super League, women's football, and you know a whole bunch of other things about data. So I'm very excited about that. Oh, fantastic! Really looking forward to uh, reading uh, all the updates to the book um, when that comes out in the autumn. Right. So um, I've got quite a packed agenda um, uh, in terms of topics I'd like to discuss with you and. Uh, I'll just come on to uh, those in a moment. But before I come on to those, um, can you just let our listeners know a bit about you in, in terms of your um, interest in the economics of sport and football in particular and, and how that interest developed? Right, yeah. So um, I did a PhD in economics at uh, Birkbeck College in London um, many decades ago. And after that, uh, early in the 90s, actually, I got interested in what football data could tell us about um, the performance of businesses. And um, uh, those were the days when actually football was thought to be in rather difficult times before the start of the Premier League, not long after the Hillsborough disaster. And 
Um, actually, what happened sort of over the decade of the 90s, the, the, the perception of football and the fortunes of football changed completely. And I got really caught up in those changes and trying to understand it. And um, I started off writing a few papers about the just the economics of um, English football, but then sort of more broadened out to think about uh, wider issues in sport, things like um, funding the Olympics or the um, uh, those kind of activities, and eventually got uh, invited to, um, I, I worked in London uh, at business schools and then got invited to come to the University of Michigan um, just over 10 years ago um, to teach sport management here um, uh, and really talk to people. Uh, to a lot of that time is sort of explaining what is called here soccer to Americans and trying to get them to see how that differs from the business models that they're used to in baseball and American football and so on. Thank you for that. Um, so uh, yeah, quite an interesting journey then. Now, um, there are a range of um, kind of more broader topics in relation to um, football and uh, the economics of football I'll be coming on to, but um, we are a Liverpool-based, um, Liverpool Football Club-based uh, podcast. And um, I'd just like, if I may, to um, talk to you about the owners of Liverpool Football Club, Fenway Sports Group, who um, took ownership um, close to 12 years ago now. And under their stewardship, um, the club has seen uh, a, a very uh, remarkable turnaround in fortunes. Um, from being um, one a, a club that had um, gone from one um, on-field and off-field issue after another with um, owners and uh, managers and um, other issues. And um, stability was brought in with um, a very well-structured model um, developed by FSG um, and was loosely based around um, the model they'd employed um, at their um, baseball franchise, the Boston Red Sox. Now, um, this is a model that is based on um, financial self-sustainability. And I'll come on to that as a wider point later on, but um, can you tell us about um, your, your, your kind of interactions with um, the principal owner of Liverpool Football Club, John W. Henry, and also um, your view on on the kind of model that they have implemented at Liverpool Football Club as well. Right. So I met John um, a couple of times, uh, really, uh, when he was first actually um, involved in um, was actually in the in the buying stage, um, and he actually uh, we actually talked a bit about. Um, the, the, the football world um, just before he bought the club. And um, I, to be honest, actually, I haven't really spoken to him much since. He very kindly endorsed a, a book I wrote, another book I wrote called Money and Football, which was published in 2015, but I haven't really been in touch with him since. So um, I've sort of been watching from afar. But, um, you know, I, I think, I mean, when you say uh, a business model, I think, you know, John Henry's view of the world is, is pretty straightforward, which is that um, basically uh, any kind of business activity is 
depends on use of information, the efficient use of information, and that a lot of people are guessing at stuff which you can actually find out and know. And if you know, you're in a better position than if you're guessing. And this is also about recognizing what you can know and what you can't know as well, and not thinking that you, you, you know more than you do. So it's, it's, a, um, it's, very, it's really very similar to, to, to betting, I think, in my view. Um, it's, um, again, smart gamblers uh, are, uh, make sure they know what they're, what they're dealing with when they place a bet. They know um, as much detail as, as is possible to uh, obtain. And then the, you don't gamble on things you're unsure of. If you're not sure, then you don't do it. Um, and so it's a, it's a very simple model, but I think one that he applied becoming immensely rich in commodities trading um, and then really applied to to baseball, as you mentioned, with the with Red Sox, where um, of course baseball is a is a sport which is very susceptible statistic, to statistical analysis. And of course, I think one thing he's done in Liverpool uh, and FSG have done in Liverpool is is broad stability because I don't need to talk to Liverpool fans about the nightmare Hicks Gillette era, which really almost drove the club off a cliff, right? Um, and um, just recovering and doing simple things right, and also you know um, riding the luck that comes comes your way. I think I think Liverpool have also had a a, a good turn, uh, some turns of good fortune along the way, as well as actually um, as well as good solid management. Yes, and uh, and that kind of leads me very nicely into. Um... My, my next question, which is along a similar theme. Um, now, this is actually something I'll, I'll read to you as an extract from Soconomics, um, and it, it relates to um, a club that operates in a, a not dissimilar way to Liverpool Football Club, which is um, the German juggernaut Bayern Munich. Um, so the passage reads, um, Bayern is a marvellous self-sustaining debt-free business, um, but the... Uh, oh, sorry, bear with me... Um, but the point of a soccer club isn't to have nice accounts. After all, the club with horrible accounts survived too. Um, the point of a soccer club is to win trophies. And uh, then goes on to state from 1976 through to 2017, um, Bayern won the Champions League just twice. That's a meagre return for the biggest club of Western Europe, um, uh, Western Europe's biggest soccer country. So, do you, do you still kind of hold the same view in light of um, changes in the kind of economic landscape where football is concerned? Do you, do you think um, that um, financial self-sustainability is all well and good, but it shouldn't be the end? It should be um, almost a, a nice to have and, and the key criteria should always be about success. Well, I mean, Simon and I have been sort of fairly out on a limb on this. And I, I'll be honest, I, I don't think probably most of your listeners are going to say, are going to disagree with what I'm going to say now, um, which is that financial sustainability is not a problem in football. I can already hear people gasping, sighing, saying, what are you talking about? <laughs> and, and to which the point is that if you look 
at the English Football League tables in 1923, so 100 years ago, they don't look very different from the way they look today. And all of the clubs that were there in 1923 are still around today in one form or another. There's almost no other industry or business that you can say that of, right? And yes. so that football does not have a sustainability problem. Football is the most wonderfully sustainable activity. And the reason it's so wonderfully sustainable, well, there are several reasons, but one of the reasons is, is that we all love football, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a passion for all of us. And that's really what sustains football, the passion of the fans. And I think what's happened, the problem is, is that fans have become increasingly anxious over the years about the possibility that their club might go bankrupt, then fold, and then disappear and cease to play football ever again. And that's a fear which is, the problem with that is that that fear is not rooted in reality. It doesn't actually happen. What happens, football clubs go bankrupt. That is true. And there's been a lot of bankruptcy in football over the last 30, 40 years. However, in every case, the football club is revived in one form or another and continues to play. So that worrying about bankruptcy and worrying leads you to of, is, is misleading because it then leads you on to saying, well, to avoid this fate, we must ensure that whoever owns the club is making money. And that's what the owners want you to think. They want you to believe that the club must be profitable, that it must be making, breaking even, it must be sustainable, because that way they can charge you more money, they can take bigger profits out of the business. So I think what's really going on is that there's a, basically a con that fans are being persuaded and being, being um, in, in, in some ways, being terrorized into thinking that clubs must be financially stable. And that's actually contrary to the interests of the fans. What happens when, what happens if you don't do that is that the owners start to compete against each other for success. And that's what we as fans want. We want to see them spending the money on players and not making profits for themselves. Yeah, and I have to say that um, I'm very much aligned to your view when it, when it comes to um, this, this concept of uh, self-sustainability from a financial perspective, because um, I think what the Liverpool owners have done a masterful job of is... Um, especially given um, the owners that preceded them, is to convince large swathes of the Liverpool Football Club fan base that um, the club has to be run in a very careful way and um, every decision has to be um, thought through in a in, um, reasonable amount of detail and you know, careful due diligence needs to be applied and uh, as a result of that, um, you know, over the last several years, um, compared to their rivals, Liverpool Football Club have spent um, comparatively little in uh, by way of bringing players into the club. Now, granted, they've only just um, recently gone out and um, nigh on broken their transfer fee record with the signing of uh, Darwin Nunes. Um, up until then, um, very little spend. Um, 
since 2018 compared to rivals. And surprisingly, a lot of Liverpool fans have been very accepting of that uh, because of the narrative that um, we need to be very careful with our finances. We don't want to end up like... uh, um, find ourselves in in, in the situation we were in back in 2009-2010. And um, I think that if you look at other clubs such as Manchester United, um, Chelsea, even Arsenal, um, and their owners and the fact that they've spent more and yet fans have still been dissatisfied with the owners and um, their approaches to business, um, I think that it's very easy to argue that Fenway Sports Group, in certain respects, had a bit of an easy ride of it. Um, but also, at the same time, they did uh, do extremely well in appointing a, a truly bona fide top-class manager in Jurgen Klopp. Though I've made the argument that um, he's achieved success, perhaps in spite of the FSG model, run because of it. Yeah, I mean, one thing I would say is Liverpool, and I think this goes for the fans and the owners, you're in something of a sweet spot right now in the sense that the club is being very successful. You're very competitive. You're unlucky to miss out on two trophies this year. If you mm. you know, luck had gone your way, you would have got at least one of them. Um, and, you know, that's all been achieved with a relatively restrained spending. I mean, not that actually restrained. It's not, I mean, Liverpool still spends an awful lot of money. Um, so it's not as if it's, it's, it's not that they're, it's not, I would say it's not an Arsenal situation, for example, where um, the owners seem completely reluctant to invest in players and the clubs suffering uh, in, in its status as, as a result. So I think Liverpool's in, in a sweet spot at the moment. The concern, obviously, is if, if there was a run of bad luck for the club and things didn't start to go a little bit worse, would, would the money be forthcoming? And um, again, it might be that, that, that FSG would recognise that they have to do that. I mean, they are, I think they have been fairly smart so far. And so they, it's possible that they, that would be OK. Um, but if they did start to say, oh, well, no, we can't spend money, then, then that would be a problem. But one of the things I would say, one of the things I would stress, you know, I think, I think again, I suspect Liverpool fans probably aware of this is, is that I think the thing about John Henry is it, I don't think he's, I don't think he's insincere in believing that you have to be profitable in, to be successful. I think that's, I think that's just the way Americans view professional sports. That's how they think about it. And I think um, what what concerns me more is that we in in um, people in Britain or people in Europe, I think we've always actually seen that there's a difference between making money and making a successful team, and we've always seen a trade-off there. And I think I, what I, what worries me is I think that 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 John Henry wants to persuade the rest of us that that's how we should think about it, and he wants to change our minds. And I think that's, you know, and I think, you know, where the rubber hit the road here is with the European Super League project, whereas, where, again, I think he genuinely did not appreciate how outrageous the suggestion was, partly because he, because of his views about what makes for a well-run club. 
And I think that's in some sense the, the, the battleground now in European football is between this um, American style view of, of what professional sport is and uh, our traditional views, um, particularly the views amongst the fans. Right, and I, I think it's um, interesting that um, you know if, if you look through the various tiers um, of um, football within England and even um, other leagues around the UK, um, you will find um, that the overwhelming vast majority of owners um, do inject. Um, their own uh, finances to support their clubs in some form or fashion. Um, but we do have um, a small contingent of owners um, who don't believe in that. And uh, they do tend to be um, American owners by and large, even though, um, you know, general business sense suggests that, you know, um, you know, business should be self-sustaining. Football is is not like normal business, is it? And, uh, you know, I, th I think if you look at um, some of the other um, more recent um, ownership interests that have come in from the Middle East, for example, they, they take a very different view of um, how to operate clubs. Um, and Abu Dhabi, um, with their ownership of... Uh, Manchester City, amongst other clubs within the City Football Group, are probably the, the clearest example of that, are they not? Right. I, so I, I, and I think one of the things about this is that, that, that football clubs are what you would call in economics trophy assets. So they, they're simply by owning a football club, you acquire an awful lot of status in your community. And that has value above and beyond making a profit. And so in, in some sense, it, it's worth spending money to, uh, to attain that kind of asset value. And I think a lot of people tend to think that this is a relatively new phenomenon, but actually you, you look back through the history of football and there have always been, this has always been the case, that there, the, the sums of money necessary to the wealth that you require to own a football club has, has increased substantially, that's true. But the idea that, that there have always been owners in, 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 in the football world who have, um, uh, who, who have put, have, as you say, plowed money into the club in order to build success, in order to build status in their community. And I, I think, because I think the other uh, sort of issue in European football, which I think divides a lot of fans, is whether this ownership model is the right one or whether we should have a model where fans control the clubs um, uh, you know, along the lines of the German 50 plus one rule. And mm. I mean, I, I will say that I, I'm sort of um, uh, agnostic about this. I, I think there's a lot to be said for a fan ownership model in, in football. But one thing that you won't get with the fan ownership model is the kinds of injection of capital into, into the game that we've seen from some of these trophy owners. And I think it's, it's worth bearing in mind that a lot of the improvements in quality in football in the last 30 years um, 
And anyone like me who's old enough to remember what football was like 40 years ago has to recognize that there have been vast and substantial improvements, particularly in England, um, that, that a lot of the funding for those improvements actually came out of trophy owners putting their money into support, into, into building, building a name in the, in the community. So I think there's a, there's, a, there's a tension there about the way forward here. Yeah, quite. And um, I think that some of that was uh, certainly came to the fore um, when um, news broke some 15 months ago about the um, ill-fated European Super League concept that you, you briefly mentioned earlier. Um, so just over a year on from that um, short-lived um, concept and the, the fact that it barely got off the ground uh, before um, it, it met its demise. Um, do, do you think there is any lasting impact from, from that episode which, which could shape um, the direction of football at, 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 at its kind of highest level amongst the superpowers, you know, your your Spanish giants, Barcelona, Real Madrid, uh, Manchester United, et cetera, et cetera. Or, or do you think that that episode um, has put to bed any possibility of um, any uh, incarnation of, of that concept emerging again in the future? Um, so I would, it, it has not gone away. It's it, that issue has been with us since it's really been with us since the 1980s, and and it's not gone away just because um, of the the outrage that was manifested um, at the time. I think um, there is there is always going to be a commercial logic to creating a closed super league. Um, never forget the major leagues in the United States, the NFL, Major League Baseball, the NBA. These are incredibly profitable leagues. They're organized on this principle that you have a closed membership of elite teams uh, that dominate the sport completely. So that that model works it's viable and so there will be uh people with money there will be uh investors who will want to try to push such a reform through and the only thing that's really going to stop it is the kind of sustained protest and political action probably that you saw around um the the, the resistance to the super league last time and the, the danger is, of course, is that, you know, that one day this will actually work because, you know, if people, um, you know, the, the, you know, like the old saying, the price of freedom is eternal vigilance, right? And I think that it's the same with the Super League. The price of keeping the Super League away is, is eternal vigilance as well. And so I, I, th I, think, it'll, I think it'll come back. Um, and again, I think it's because many of the people who are promoting this idea and sincerely believe that it's the best future. It's not that they are somehow, you know, um, you know, think that they're not conscious of this being something terrible. They just think that the rest of us who want to preserve the traditional structures, they just think we're old fashioned and, you know, unthoughtful and don't realize how good it would be. So, um, you know, I think, uh, I think that's, 
that, that it's going it's it's going to come back. And I think what we've seen in the last since then, we've seen more venture capital money, more um, uh, private equity money coming into European football. And again, that money is looking for a quick return. And again, the quickest return that I can think of in European football is the creation of a Super League. So I think that issue could be coming back sooner rather than later. Interesting. Um, now, perhaps linked to that, um, there were there was some surprise in certain quarters um, when the sale was concluded for Chelsea Football Club, um, so a consortium led by um, another American, Todd Boelli, um that, that that deal concluded very recently um for a total value of 4.25 billion albeit um a sizable chunk of that is a commitment to invest into the club in the future um primarily for a, a new uh, stadium but nonetheless that the figures that were um committed by that consortium um did draw surprise in certain quarters um but given what you just touched upon um, in terms of the possibility of the european super league not having gone away um is that perhaps a reason why that group decided to invest so much and fought so hard against some fierce competition to acquire um what one of the best known um football clubs in the world yeah, so I, I think there are two or three things to say about this. So, so one is, of course, you know, one one of the things that has attracted Americans really ever since the Glazers bought Manchester United is this recognition that um, football, soccer, is the most popular sport in the world by far, and it is commercially underexploited. So it's um, going to um, it's, it's not going to go away. It's not going to, um, uh, it, it's only going to grow in value. So I think a lot of these people are buying in, not necessarily knowing how things are going to turn out or having any specific plan, but just believing this will grow in value because it dominates the, the global media landscape. I think, uh, I think a second thing to say, though, about this is that, um, uh, you know, these people um, will will be looking to get a return on their investment. They will they will want to make money out of it, and they will then be inclined to any reform that's going to allow them to make um, more money. Um, and that will always um, be an issue. Uh, but I think a third thing to say is. I mean, we, we talk a lot about American inv investors and we think about the Glazers and we think about um, Cranky at, at uh, Arsenal and John Henry and so on. And we also, the tendency is to forget that there are quite a few American investors who have um, had to walk away with big losses. And I think that's, I think that's, a, that's another issue to be, to be aware of. Um, uh, so obviously the 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 um, the um, the obvious example was Aston Villa, right, where the um, guy uh, ended up losing quite a lot of money and just had to walk away. Um, Randy Lerner, 
Um, and so, you know, it's not that they, there's not, there's nothing magical about this, about American investors and their ability to make money out of these investments. I mean, some of them, some of them fail as well. So I think, um, I think these are sort of some of the things to bear in mind when thinking about the role that, that, that foreign investors are playing in this. And I guess that one of the um, one of the uh, factors that um, prospective owners look at when it comes to um, certainly the Premier League is the subject of broadcast rights, and uh, perhaps that is one area that these owners or prospective owners, I should say, um, feel that maybe uh, the Premier League hasn't yet optimised. Um, it's, it's earnings potential on the broadcast rights front. And, uh, you know, we did see an appreciable increase in the deal um, with NBC, um, where that was extended through to 2028. And um, I think there were one or two other deals um, that have also been secured overseas, uh, which has meant that I think overseas broadcast rights are now um, exceeding domestic broadcast rights, um, and do, do, you, do you think that that is an area that um, it is subject to significant growth, or do, or do you think there might be a bubble that exists there that might be on the verge of bursting? Um, well, whatever people say, bubbles and football. Um... You know, it's always, I mean, I, I, ever since I started doing research on football, um, people have been talking about asking me whether the bubble is going to burst. And so uh, um, <laughs> 30 years on, you know, I, 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 I mean, I guess it could be, it's probably going to be true one day. And certainly, you know, I think I would suspect that, that the, 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 result, the, the growth of broadcast rights is going to be at least delayed for some years at the moment because of the, you know, the, the consequences of COVID and the financial um, problems that the football clubs have. I think, I mean, one of the issues is, you know, a, a lot of, there's a, there's a black hole, a financial black hole in a lot of European football at the moment. And um, I think how, how that unwinds is, is gonna be interesting. I mean, that's, that's one of the things that's brought in a lot of this, um, um, uh, new investment, this sort of the, the private equity investment into European football is the fact, the very fact that many of the clubs need an injection of capital and that's where it's going to come from. Um, but I think, I think the question is really not so much whether the broadcast rights are likely to grow in the future, it's what is the, what, what platforms are viewers, fans going to watch games from? Mm. Uh, so I, I uh, for example, over here in the US, um, Major League Soccer's just signed a deal with Apple TV to sell its entire uh, uh, portfolio. All the games are going to be showed on on, a, on an app on Apple TV. Now, I'm not sure that's the smartest deal I've ever seen. Uh, it may have been the only deal that was on offer to Major League Soccer, but it does suggest that, you know, we're going to see, I think, different models, different platforms emerging in the coming years. And very much depends on how the next generation of fans want to watch the game. And 
um, again, anyone my age will recognize that the that, 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 that viewing patterns have changed significantly. I mean, um, when my kids were growing up, I, you know, they, I couldn't get them to sit down and watch an entire game with me in the way that I would have sat down and watched an entire game with my father. Um, so that, um, you know, it, it, we've seen these changes coming in in the way that people want to view, particularly younger people want to view sport. And that's going to be, I think, the critical thing. And then the question is, um, who gets the money? And it may well be that one, one issue might be that the players are actually in a stronger position because in, a, in, in the end, the fans are more interested in the players often than they are in the club itself. And so that whole relationship may change. So the, who gets the money may change over time uh, as opposed to necessarily there being less money. I doubt there'll be less money. I think it's just, it might be distributed differently. Um, so stemming from that, um, you know, you touched upon players and um, a subject that is always uh, contentious or much talked about at least is is the subject of player wages, as, as they're called. Now, this is an area that you have um, looked into in the past. And um, do, you, do you think that... Um, the relationship between wages and success um, has in any way changed since you initially researched this area. You still think there is a correlation between the wage bill and, and success, or is it perhaps more closely uh, linked now um, to spend on transfers? Do you, do, you, do you think there's been any shift um, on that front, or do you think it's pretty much the same now as it was uh, when you first looked into this area? Yeah, it's a great question, actually, because I mean, I, and I would say one of the few constants in my life in the last 30 years is the pay performance relationship in, in football, particularly in English football. And basically, it's barely changed. It's the relationship looks almost exactly the same today as it did 30 years ago. Um, and um, I would say, and, and the reason is, and I think, and I think the, the important question to ask is why? Why would that be true? To which I think the answer is that ability of players is more or less self-evident. We know who the good players are. No, I mean, you know, if, if, so if, if, uh, if we ask fans to list the top 10 players in the world, the same players would crop up over again. You get a little bit of variation and number player at number one might be player at number three for somebody else. But by and large, that ranking is pretty clear in everybody's mind. And that means that the, when it comes to negotiating wages, there's really not really much of an argument to be had. The, the, the player wages really reflect your standing within the club. And that's why um, player wages really reflect um, success to that extent. It's not that you pay people and therefore, because they're being paid a lot of money, they play well. It's that if you want to hire this player, you're going to have to pay the going rate and the going rate is very well known because your status and ability are very, are very well known. Um, so I think uh, um, that's uh, it's been one of the constants, as I say, in, in, my, in my research career. And I think it's as true today as it ever was. Um, so credit to uh, our um, 
Polygon and Field Index Pro, Dan Kennett, for um, that question. Um, but then a follow-up question to that is uh, around incentivization with player contracts, where some clubs um, will offer players more by way of um, guaranteed weekly um, salary, whereas other clubs will um, have a different structure in place which places a greater emphasis on bonuses. And Liverpool Football Club is one such club that about eight to nine years ago moved to more um, incentivized contracts which placed a greater emphasis on bonus payments. Um, so again, what are your views about um, clubs that kind of look to have perhaps lower basic wages um, and heavier incentivization? Uh, do, do you think that that makes a, a substantial difference in terms of performance and out, ultimately outcomes on, on the pitch? Well, that is, a, that is a wonderful question to ask me right now because I've just finished writing a paper on precisely this issue. Um, so um, what, what, I, what I do in the research paper is to estimate the impact of luck on wages. So one thing that one way to think about this is, um, and th this is a subject that is right at the core of economics, and people have been writing about this issue in economics for the last 30, 40 years. In fact, you know, in many ways, you know, if you listen to things, I mean, the a popular view of economics today is that economics is all about incentives. You'll, you'll hear people say that a lot. And that's, that's a lot to do with this idea that in order to get people to perform, you need to pay them for their performance. And a lot of that comes out of, if you don't pay the performance, they won't try. If you just say, well, I'm going to guarantee you a wage, what's the point of making any effort? And most of us in our employment situation, whether we're, whether if you work in a, uh, an industrial situation or if we're working in an office, we're all aware that, that it's very hard for our employers really to pay, um, to actually have a very clear idea of what we're doing hour by hour during the day. So if they just pay as a fixed wage, then there's a risk that we might not do anything. Um, whereas if you give people an incentive based on saying, well, the more our profits go up or the more our sales go up, then the bigger your salary is going to be. So you get to share in the, in the output of the business, then that, that is, gives you an incentive to provide effort. And what's happening in football is that people, um, and presumably this is, applies to the, the manager, the, the, H, the human resource people at Liverpool, they're thinking, they're, they're applying this idea to football and saying, well, we need to give the players incentive to win, to score goals, blah, blah, blah. The, so one way, one way to see whether that works or not then is to see, or to see the extent to which you have these incentive payments is to look at um, luck. Because output can go up because of your, you try harder, but output could go up because you get lucky. You can win a game that you shouldn't have won or be lucky or you should lose a game that you shouldn't have won and be unlucky. And what the incentive pay theory would say is, well, you'd still get paid more even if you were lucky because 
the whole point is that the, the incentives are being provided based on the output and the, and the output is and it's based on the idea that you can't really see the effort that people are making. It's just, did, they, did the output go up? And so, one, so I just tested this on you know, uh, 20 years of data for all the clubs in the Premier League and the Championship. And what I find is that there is no correlation of pay with luck, that the players are getting paid essentially a fixed wage. So even when teams say they have incentive contracts, they're not really having an effect. And that comes back to the point that I was making before about ability is that there's, it, there's really not much of a question about whether the players are trying. We know the players' ability because we watch them every week. And we also know whether they're trying. And we can see that. And indeed, if a player really isn't trying, you don't give them a, you don't dock their play, you bench them. And no player wants to get benched because that's ruining their career. So... Mm. Players have a huge amount of intrinsic motivation to begin with. These are some of the most highly motivated people in the world. After all, it takes something pretty special to get to play in the Premier League. But second, they have real career concerns if they don't put it full effort in. It's that they that might ruin their career because they get a reputation for being, you know, uh, for coasting. So I, I think the whole idea of incentive pay in football, even if it makes sense in other industries and in other contexts, it makes no sense really in, in football. So, um, uh, but it's something that I've been, I, I, I've been, I've thought for many years, but I haven't actually been able to demonstrate this with data. And as I say, in this recent research paper, um, I've just um, been able to establish this, I think. Um, and if anybody's interested in reading these, the, the, the research paper, you can just send me an email and if you certainly type in my name on the internet, you'll come up with my email like all academics. We're all easily contactable by email. Fantastic. Well, I think there will be a fair few listeners that might well take you up on that offer because uh, certainly um, at this moment in time, um, one of the hottest subjects um, amongst Liverpool fans is um, the uh, contract situation relating to the club star player, um, Mo Salah. And uh, a lot of the discussion revolves around the fact that though the club does pay the player extremely well, um, that is with um, you know, significant bonuses. Whereas our understanding is that uh, the player and his representative are pushing for a much higher guaranteed sum um, and uh, I think that is why there is uh, a, a standoff of sorts between club, player, and an agent. And, uh, you know, the, the whole conversation around, well, should, should we pay Salah a larger guaranteed sum per week um, is, is, is one that uh, rages on social media. Um, some fans think that the club should move to that um, to retain their best player. Others feel that um, FSG should rigidly maintain um, the waste structure they have in place. Uh, but that, that, that is certainly a hot topic and has been for a while. And as I say, um, I, think, I think there'll be a few listeners that might be very interested in what your research paper has to say on that subject. Um, so just um, my penultimate um, question relates to 
a, a related development which we've seen um, over the last 15, nearly 20 years, which is the rise of um, analytics and, and, and data to inform decision-making um, within football clubs. Um, so how do you think data analytics has changed the way um, football economics has evolved um, over over recent years? Do, do you think it has had um, a significant impact or not so much? Um, and do you think um, it, it will play a bigger role in the way in which clubs operate in the future? I think it's certainly had an impact. And I think, um, and, and I think uh, in any sport, uh, you will see the more information that teams and players can gather about their performance, the better off they're going to be in the long term. So I think it's a sort of a fairly natural process. And I mean, we see it, we talk about it as a data analytics revolution. And it is in many ways connected to the fact that at the same time, We've been, you know, the, uh, um, the, the dramatic increases in the power of computing and the wider availability of data by the internet has enabled us to make you know, step advances in our understanding about what's going on. Um, but that said, I think, I think one can overstate the significance. So, and I think, you know, the one obvious case is, you know, whenever you, whenever you think about this, you should always try to think about like in Sherlock Holmes, the, the dog that didn't bark. So if, if data analytics was so central, you'd have thought that it would have played a big role in the story of Barcelona's rise and dominance in the early 2010s, late 2000, late noughties, and the continued success of someone like Pep Guardiola um, you, you know, you'd have thought that 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 would that would have played a role, and um, and I, I've asked Simon about this because he wrote a book, he published a book just recently about uh, Barcelona, and one of the things he he says is, you know, there's absolutely no hint of any uh, any significant reliance on analytics at Barcelona. It's never been the case, and you know, the La Masia and all of that never was about analytics. So that in some ways, you know, the most important development in, in the way that football is played, if you think tiki-taka is, is sort of the most important in, in, in development in, in recent decades, um, that's got nothing to do with analytics. So, it, so I think in that sense, I think what one can overstate it, and that, but I don't want to anyone to sort of say that to say that I don't think it's important. I think it has played a role. I think probably, in fact, the, the biggest impact so far has not been so much in terms of strategy and, and, and uh, the way the game is played, but in terms of managing fitness and ensuring players are at peak level. Because um, I think there are a lot of things that are measurable about athletic uh, condition um, and athletic conditioning, which, um, which, which data can, can help us with. And, and, and that's really, I think, the, the, the biggest part of it. Um, Okay, thank you. And um, just a final question, which is from one of our um, subscribers, Nizami, and uh, he asks a question in relation to um, what he states is a direction of travel of players running down contracts and um, what he feels is a, a trend of that becoming increasingly common. 
Um, and, and do you think um, football clubs, in terms of how they operate in their financial models, um, are geared to losing players essentially for free when players run down their contracts and then move on to other clubs? Um, and, and do you think clubs can perhaps put measures in place to um, prohibit, pro not so much prohibit that, sorry, but um, to kind of rein that in so as to ensure that they do still command um, sell-on fees when they decide that the player should be moved on? Well, so now I'm going to say something else that will horrify a large number of fans, which is I think the transfer system should be abolished. And actually, I think, in my view, it's actually uh, an illegal system. Uh, it's, it's contrary to the competition law, as I understand it, in the UK and European Union, um, and it should be done away with. And I think clubs would be fine if there were no transfer system. I don't think it would, uh, I don't think it would make any significant difference. And again, you know, I've written about this quite a lot and uh, I know fans have a lot of arguments that they raise against me. It usually gets a very heated argument, but trust me, I have thought about it in detail. You might not agree with me, but I can marshal quite a lot of facts in support of this position. The, the biggest puzzle, I think, in recent years has been why players don't just wait out their contracts. And um, because they're clearly, if, if the team, if clubs are paying over large sums in transfer fees, then presumably that's money that could go to the player um, if the player would only wait and see out their contract and, and move on a free. So, um, and um, maybe it's just taken time for players to recognize their incentives uh, uh, to do this. And that in itself might lead to ultimately to a collapse of the transfer system. Um, but again, I'm here to say that I do not believe that football would be significantly adversely affected if the transfer system collapsed. And actually, I think that would be a good thing. I like bold opinions. <laughs> <laughs> not sitting on the fence here absolutely yeah no I, I, I think you make a very very good point there and uh, I, I do agree that I, I think the system is well for, for want of a better phrase broken to some extent and uh, at, at least requires um, significant reform if not um, scrapping altogether so again um, preaching to the converted on that point too Right, so that brings us to the end of um, what I think has been a very fascinating, thought-provoking um, discussion. Um, I'd like to thank you immensely, um, Stefan, for um, joining us and uh, sharing your, your views and um, you know, your, your analysis as well that you've undertaken over years um, with our listeners. Um, so for those um, who aren't aware, um, can you just let our listeners know uh, where they can find you on on social media and remind us once again about when the um, fifth edition of uh, Soconomics will be released. Right. No, thank you. And yes, it's been a it's been a real pleasure to to, to be with you today. So um, I I I have a Twitter account at s s z z y, um, which uh, I sort of. Um, 
I'm not I'm not a huge um, poster, but I do from time to time and, and talk about it. Um, and then uh, uh, if you want to, as I say, if you want to see the paper, you can just email me. And if you want to find my email, you can just find me um, at the University of Michigan. You just type my name into the web and it'll come up my, my email address at the University of Michigan. Um, and then um, Soconomics, the, actually, I, I will say, since some of your listeners might actually be interested in cricket, so I actually have a book, Cricketonomics, which, uh, with Tim Wigmore, the cricket journalist, which came out last month. But the fifth edition of Soconomics with Simon Cooper will appear in October with um, three brand new chapters, which uh, we're, we're very proud of. So uh, we hope to keep this, uh, the, the, the book going for a few more years. Um, and evolving our views as football changes over time. Terrific. So I would certainly urge all listeners to uh, make the effort to um, buy the book when it comes out um, in the autumn. And uh, also uh, for those that are interested um, in in the research paper, um, do drop uh, Stefan an email and he will gladly oblige with sharing that paper. So, and I'll certainly be one of the people that will be emailing you in the coming days. Yeah, great, wonderful. <laughs> so uh, once again, thank you so much, Stefan. And uh, thank you listeners for joining us on, on uh, this episode of Money Talks. I'll be back again very soon um, with uh, a guest that we've had on before. Um, and, and that will be to talk about um, the subject of uh, Liverpool Football Club's um, commercial activities. And um, that, that's um, certainly another hot subject amongst many of you. And uh, that's something I'm very much looking forward to by welcoming um, Alex Miller from um, FC Business and, and the Mail um, to talk about that um, very wide-ranging subject um, when it comes to sponsorship deals, um, the potential for Liverpool to be um, signing its next shirt sponsorship deal with potentially a cryptocurrency-related company, um, some of the ramifications involved in that, um, the expansion of Anfield, and plenty more besides. So um, that is coming your way very, very soon. But until next time, up the reds. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement, and we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.